It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Harbin Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Harbin Institute North America, and we're recording on April 11th, 2021 for Yom Hatzmut, Israel Independence Day, which takes place this week. And I'm really excited to continue with the second half of a pair of shows that we have been releasing on Jewish music. Some of you hopefully heard our first episode on this, which was on what we'll inelegantly call American Jewish from music. I think actually more people heard that show than ever before, and many people shared their opinions on what we got right and wrong in that story. Today's going to be the second half of that piece, which is Israeli Jewish music. I have with us a couple of guests and friends and scholars to talk about Israeli Jewish music, although all of us are coming from an American background. We are fans and to some degree scholars of this material as well as of these conversations, but our enthusiasm about this is also deeply personal, and hopefully what this show will help us elicit is not just why we think this music tells powerful stories about Israeli society and about Jewishness in Israel, but also gives you a sense of why we are drawn to it and why it might matter or should matter to American Jews who care about both American Jewish identity, but Israel as well. So to play with me through this material, we're going to listen to some music together, talk about why we love it, what's interesting about it. I'm thrilled to welcome back to Identity Crisis, Dr. Shana Weiss, who's the Associate Director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis University, writes frequently around Israeli culture, pop culture, music, film, and song, and was originally on Identity Crisis to talk with us about the HBO show Our Boys. And Joe Schwartz. Joe is a rabbi, David Hartman fellow here at the Institute, as well as the CEO of a new venture called Asif, celebrating Israeli Jewish culture. So first of all, welcome, Shane and Joe. Thanks for doing this. And let me start by asking both of you, Shane, I'll start with you. What is it for you about this music? What are you drawn to about Israeli music Maybe tell something a little bit personal about why you're here, and then we'll get into some of the questions beyond what you like and don't like, why this music is important. But first, tell us what brings you around this table today. Right. So I was first introduced to Israeli music in the 90s when I attended Camp Ramah in Palmer, Massachusetts. And we were taught all sorts of Israeli music, tons to sing, tons to learn. It was new for me. I hadn't really learned anything before. But no one ever told us that what we were learning was actually popular music from the 50s and 60s and not like contemporary Israeli 90s music. The one exception to that was in Camp Ramah in 1998, the summer after Donna International won Eurovision. And that's how I learned what Eurovision was, created a lifelong obsession. But it wasn't until later on, really in college, when I started getting interested in Israeli culture and society, when I realized that the songs that I learned were actually representative of only a very small slice of Israeli society, this like kibbutznik pioneering type spirit that I'm sure we'll talk about later. And it was that disconnect that led me to start thinking about what was Israeli music, what it represents, who it represents. And for me, Israeli music I'm interested in partly because of difference. It's so different than American music. It picks up different trends. It's obviously influenced by American music, but it thinks about things differently And especially if we're thinking about Jewish music, I just found it so much more expansive and diverse than, say, American Jewish music. Right. So we'll get into a distinction in a second I want to come back to about Israeli music and Israeli Jewish music. We have to talk about that. It's an imperfect categorization. Joe, what are we drawn to? Maybe give us like a story of where you started to encounter Israeli music and what's made you stick with it. So I grew up in a home without a lot of Yiddishkeit, but with a lot of music, very musical home, mostly jazz and R&B mostly bebop jazz, and a very judgmental family about what's good music and what's bad music. I was taught very early on what's kitsch and what's not. And when I was 19, I kind of set out on a Jewish quest of my own, which began with going to Israel. I was the first member of my family to go to Israel. Until that point, 
I really didn't even have a picture in my head of what Israel was. And I went for the sole purpose of learning Hebrew. I did what's called the Ulpan, which is like an immersive Hebrew program. And over the years, I've done lots and lots of Ulpanim and I finished the program. And one of the things that they do really beautifully in that program is mix in popular music as, you know, ways of teaching about verb forms and concepts and biblical allusions. And so I was just blown away by the extent to which Israeli music is in dialogue always with the Jewish past. But the sort of musicality of my home growing up made me engage in this other personal search, which is what of this music do I really think is great? And I've never had a formal education in Israeli music. I followed my tastes and done my best to sort of live out the creed of the home I grew up in, which is it can't be kitsch. It has to be really extraordinary. And with that, I have to say, I really agree with what Shana just said. Part of it is that this is really exotic in lots of ways. It just is not what I was used to growing up. And part of it is that you have a whole developed music industry there. And so what gets produced is often really excellent on its own terms. And I think that's increasingly so. Great. So we had to pick a category. If the show was about Israeli music, it's a infant long podcast. <laughs> it's a huge industry in a complicated country. We're trying to take a slice, which is Israeli Jewish music, which as I understand it, it's not to exclude non-Jews, although that's a consequence of this. Although as we'll see in kind of weird and interesting ways, there are crossover partnerships between Israeli Jewish and Israeli Arab artists, sometimes using Jewish themes. It does kind of allude to what you just said, Joe, which is referencing the Jewish past. Some Israeli Jewish music is about channeling Jewish text. And as we'll explore, there's also just the kind of crossover of artists themselves as producing music that is sometimes conversant with Jewish texts and sometimes conversant with their own Jewish identity. Anything else you want to add on that? Because we're not really talking about a genre here. <laughs> we're talking about a search for a genre or a search for a story of relevance for American Jews. Anything else you think we should listen for and notice for as we start to kind of tell this story? One is we tend to have, even when we talk about Israeli society, really definite ideas of what religious and secular mean. And those ideas are fluid and those ideas are complicated. I know we're going to talk about Kobe O's later, but I'll just say one story about him. He is a really interesting person of mixed Mizrahi Ashkenazi descent, grew up somewhat secular, has been engaged in searching for more religious meaning. He tells the story, his friends say, you know, what are you doing? Are you becoming religious or whatever? And he says, no. I'm Chiloni light. I'm secular light, right? Mocking a sort of common phrase in Hebrew, which is Dati light, which is orthodox light. So I just think that's really important to take these preconceived notions we have of religious and secular, especially of them having a specially firm divide, and leave those aside. And not to bring those to our ways of thinking when we analyze this music. Joe, I know that you're thinking a lot about bringing that exact tension, religious, secular, as a window from Israeli society into something that could be useful for American Jews. So maybe just as helping to frame the story, why? Beyond the fact that this is interesting for our own observation about the society and our own curiosity or the fact that you learn some Hebrew through it, why this very different messy identity around the bridge between secular and religious might actually be useful for American Jews to understand? Yeah, I mean, I would say one more piece to even complicate it further, which is that Jewish can refer to religious traditions. It can also refer to ethnic traditions that really kind of precede the creation of Israel. And part of what I think constitutes Jewish music in Israel today is not just music that's in touch with the religious past, but often the sort of traditions of the communities from which the singer is drawn. So we'll get into this when we get into Mizrahi music, but that means Persian music or Iranian music or Baghdadi or Moroccan or Yiddish for that matter. And so that's also in the category of Jewish. And I think why it's important is because the early state of Israel, the early ideology really tried to sever the Jews from their past and create this new Hebrew culture, which would start as the phrase went before the Palmach straight to the Tanakh and everything in between would be erased. And what we're seeing now, I think, in Israeli culture, and especially in its music, is the return of this in-between period, which is the whole of Jewish history, really, from the exile until today. And I think it's rich because the old distinction between Dati, those who still cling to their pre-Israeli identities, and Chiloni, those who are the new Hebrews, has completely fallen apart. And I think it's all for the better of the society. And for that, it's exciting for American Jews as well, because it shows a sort of a crumbling of an old mold 
and the creation of something new. Yeah, I think for many of us, it's precisely the messiness of Israeli society that makes it most interesting to be a part of eliminating all of those crude dichotomies and to notice a living and breathing Jewish society that's figuring this stuff out for the, in some ways, the first time in our history. I'll just give my own point of origin to this. And with this, we'll get into a couple of songs is I grew up in a kind of a sentimental house around Israeli Jewish music with records like the ones we're going to listen to in a moment. The Songs of the Six Day War, for instance, was a record that was on like repeat in our house. The Six Day War had a huge effect on the music culture of Israeli society, partly because Israel has always processed war and terror through music. And I think 67 was one of the moments where that happened. I grew up with Israeli folk songs, as Shana, those you referenced as being like popular music from the 50s and 60s, which American Jews still think as popular music today. But I grew up with this. And one of the pieces I want to start with is only because it'll help us get a little bit of the DNA of the Jewish music culture that we're going to unpack later on, is that there was a phenomenon called Festival Azemar Hasidi. I feel like this needs more play. The Hasidic Music Festival that runs in Israel from 1969 to 1986. You can find old videos of it on YouTube, full displays of the festivals themselves. They are very nostalgic in the sense that they kind of pick up on old kibbutz campfire culture. But in many cases, they're also the first bridge that you really start to see between actually popular Israeli musicians who show up at the festival to sing Jewish songs. This is Zvika Peek, who actually has become relevant to our discussion already because he's the author of the song that Tordana International wins the Eurovision. But this is Zvika Peek in the early 80s. Take a listen. <laughs> Data point number one, let's do data point number two. This is Shuli Natan in 1968 in France, of all places. And here's data point number three, a voice oftentimes talked about as one of the early great legendary voices of Israeli society, in some ways, the voice of early Israeli music, Shoshana Damari. <laughs> Okay, so we take three little data points, because we're going to talk mostly about Israeli Jewish music in the present, but I want to use this as the roots of this sensibility in the past, this bridge between Israeliness and Jewishness. We heard a little bit from the Hasidic Song Festival and the song Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, a piece of biblical poetry and prayer rendered into a kind of a popish sounding song, Shoshana Damari, Erev Shoshoshanim, an Israeli secular song, which ultimately becomes part of the liturgy. <laughs> That song is best known for people around the campfire or around the use in synagogue. And of course, Shuli Natan, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, a song that, unlike some of the other things we'll see, is a secular song that ultimately takes on almost religious qualities in Jewish circles afterwards. What do you listen for? What are the things that we should start to notice in these kind of quote-unquote early pieces of the pop music or rock music encountering Jewishness? What do you hear and what do you pick up on in each of these? For me, when thinking about Shoshana Damari, who is so fascinating, I think this clearly Yemenite voice singing these kibbutz songs, right? So unlike the first two, which I would say are, I don't want to say 100% Ashkenazi, but pretty hardcore Ashkenazi, you hear in Arab Shoshanim something a bit different because her voice is still very clearly from a different tradition. So even from the beginning, you start to see that melding. And then the second thing is that even though... Hasidic music and kibbutz culture seem 
totally separate. They're actually very deep connections. And even the kibbutz thinkers thought a lot about this. Like, what can they take from Hasidic culture? The idea of circle dancing, the idea of being in communion, the idea of no one being above everyone else. Those are deeply connected. So I think it's no accident that you have someone like Svika Pick, who imagine like peak rocker Israel style, long flowing hair, etc. Singing Shema maybe actually isn't as far off as we might think it is. So I just want to mention that I was speaking with a poet and a filmmaker about what America knows about Israeli music. And I mentioned that when it comes time for the repetition of the Amidah and the Kedushah, right, Erev Shoshal Shoshanim is like a standard in many, at least, conservative synagogues or, you know, traditional synagogues. And he was flabbergasted. He could barely recall what the song was. And he couldn't believe that it was still sort of alive and kicking in America. And I think that does speak to something in all three of those melodies, which is that there's an elegance, a mellifluousness to those melodies. They're easy listening. They're very beautiful. Naomi Shemer was gifted at creating these already nostalgic melodies, but they're also an artificial nostalgia, right? I mean, they're a particular sound that you can identify right away as the heyday of Israeli songwriting. And then what follows, you know, in the 80s, 90s today is a messier surface, you know, a rawness that you'll start to feel comes out. Yeah, I want to pull out a couple other things here, which is the Israeli, quote unquote, Hasidic song festivals in the late 60s, 70s and 80s are men and women both singing. Hard to imagine if you put on a Hasidic song festival today, you would actually have that dynamic of men singing and women singing together. And sometimes, as you could hear, women harmonizing. And yet right? Quote, unquote, a secular Israeli musician won't say God's name in the song of Shema Yisrael, because you can't really do that. So it has kind of prayer qualities to that as well. And interestingly, there was a significant diaspora Jewish presence at these Israeli song festivals. Shlomo Karlbach was a regular. The diaspora yeshiva band, who we talked about in the last music episode, actually won the song festival one year. So you have these American Jews who can't speak Hebrew without an accent, who just rock the place and win the festival, even though you have all these Israeli music icons there. There's something really interesting about all of the blending early on that I think has to be part of the conversation as we move closer to the present. There's a now I think this five-part album series being put out called Sam'ah, Thirsty, which is Chabad Negunim performed by pop acts, very high production values. And many people were talking about Hanan Ben-Ari, Isha Ribo, the whole crew is on these albums. They're really extraordinary. It occurred to me, it's sort of the modern incarnation of this festival. On a different note, I was thinking about, in addition to issues with the lyrics in Yerushalayim Shal Zahav, which we can talk about, the militarism, etc., what's the biggest controversy with Yerushalayim Shal Zahav is that basically on her deathbed, Nomi Shemer admits that she didn't make the melody. She basically copied it or overheard it. It's a Basque melody. The story is kind of crazy. Again, things like this happen in music. I'm not here to say Naomi Shemer plagiarized it 100%. But for me, what's interesting as a scholar is the reaction to it. Israelis lost their minds, right? This is the most Israeli thing ever. How could it be a Basque melody? And I think the reaction to it just shows how it's like finding out that your favorite Shabbat song is actually the drinking song in Poland, So it's just really interesting to me to think about, you know, what we think of as Israeli, like what that means and how that sort of shifts and changes. Yeah, wait till you find out about Bridge Over Troubled Water. Okay, so let's go to category number two or big idea number two. Big idea number two, we want to talk about Mizrahim, about the whole phenomenon of using this Orientalist category of quote unquote people from the East, non-Ashkenazi, Middle Eastern Jews. But to do that, there's only one person who we can use to introduce it. The musical act, I probably think about most when I think about Israeli music. I don't know about my colleagues here. We're going to hear two pieces by the legendary, the unparalleled Ofra Chaza. Okay, that's Ofra Chaza number one. Ofra Chaza number two, the one that brings her to the international community in 1983 at the Eurovision contest, one of the big pieces of the story of Israeli music. Okay. 
I feel like we could spend the whole episode talking about Ofrahaza. I love Ofrahaza, a little obsessed with Ofrahaza. Brief biographical information, born in 1957, dies tragically in her 40s, the year 2000. Really the voice of Israel, this song that wins the Eurovision, is one of the songs that puts Israel's story on the map in a fascinating way. I know all of us have what to say about Ofrahaza. Shayna, let me start with you. Tell me your Ofrahaza story. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a piece about Eurovision and politics when it was held in Israel in 2019. And in that piece, I argued that I think this is the most important Eurovision performance of all time. Even though that Ofra Haza tragically didn't win with this, she actually got number two. Oh, yeah, you're right. But Ofra Haza is singing high in 1983 in Germany. It is the year after Munich. I highly recommend watching the video because in addition to the lyrics, which are, you know, Am Yisrael Chai, Israel Should Live, she is in an all-white pantsuit, sparkling, flanked by five singers, on yellow, clearly reminiscent of the Six Million, in a really emotional performance in Germany, and when many Israels were scared to be there. So that's one thing. The second thing is, I think it's really curious, the two clips you chose, because they don't really show Ofrahaza as a Yemenite singer. And that was, of course, a huge tension always within Ofrahaza's life, her performing career. How much does she relate to the Yemenite, more traditional side? How much does she, the sort of more westernized pop star, right? How can Israel present itself? There's a lot to say about Mizrahi music, the production of Mizrahi music, how it was sidelined for a really long time. It used to be called cassette tape music because you literally had to go to the Tachana Merkazit, the central bus station in Tel Aviv, and buy cassettes because it wasn't played on the radio. And sort of who was she allowed to be? I mentioned to you earlier that I was double-checking something in Ofrahaza's bio on Wikipedia, of course, and I found that Yimna Analu, her singing of this sort of beautiful Yemenite song, made it on to... Grand Theft Auto. Oh, Grand Theft Auto. Made it into a Grand Theft Auto video game, which is definitely, you know, the highest praise I can think of anything. But for her... Her voice, her also rags to riches story. She was discovered in community theater programs, you know, let's give some art and culture to the poor kids in Tel Aviv, and made her and became famous through the army. Yeah, I deliberately chose these not to suppress the kind of the de-Yemenization of Ofrahaza's legacy, but in part because one of the things that's so extraordinary about her doing this in Germany in 1983 is that she's Israel. There's a certain way in which she is being Ashkenazified, I suppose, but she's also being put forward as this is the story of Israel. Our voice, the person who's going to be our voice in public, is going to be this Yemenite singer. Joe, how about you? I outlined in the beginning sort of my Jewish journey, as it were, started when I was 19. But when I was younger than that, there was this crossover hit on MTV, which was a sort of a remix of what I later learned was Ofra Khaza's Imni Nalu which Shana referred to, this is a beautiful piyut written by Shalom Shabazi in the 17th century in Yemen. If the doors of the rich are locked, the doors of heaven are always open with this magnificent chorus. And it just, I had no idea it was Israeli. I thought it was this exotic, extraordinary song. And I was obsessed with it. And I only later learned that she was Israeli. And I only later learned that she was singing in Hebrew, which at that point I, I didn't know at all. It shows that she was this talent that utterly transcends any sort of local market, right? Her voice, her instrument. I think she had a four octave range, just like Barbara Streisand. She just had this absolutely extraordinary range and real gift. And she had such depth to her phrasing and her musical expression. And that song in particular, In Inalu, which is not one of the ones you played, but is the first one that I encountered, has now been performed many times, including by Yisha Ribo, who we'll be talking about later, but she was really kind of an early inkling of what would later become the Mizrahi Piyut explosion in Israel. And I think she was really before her time, and as you said, Yehuda, tragically before her time, she could never really power into the artist that she was meant to be. Yeah. And one of the ways that she also has found her way to American audiences besides Grand Theft Auto is she is the voice of Moshe's mother in Prince of Egypt and absolutely steals the movie. I mean, her singing, and there's something weirdly perfect about it because there's also this construction of like, what would an Egyptian Jewish woman in antiquity sound like? <laughs> and of course, Sofra Chazen. So I want to say, I am an Ashkenazi person. I did not encounter Mizrahi music, which relies on Arabic scales largely, different kinds of music. And for me, we talked about good music and bad music and taste. To appreciate Mizrahi music as an American Ashkenazi Jew, I had to unlearn what I knew about music, which granted wasn't a lot. I'm not a professional musicologist or anything like that, but scales are different. 
beat is different. Rhythm is different. Everything is different. I remember when I was on Birthright and I think we were singing along to some like Mizrahi music. Maybe it was at like some bad club we went to with the Israeli soldiers as one does. And the Ashkenazi soldier mocked us for liking Mizrahi music. He was like using derogatory terms and whatnot. And I think this is something that's really important for American Jews is, you know, we talk a lot about American Jews and Israeli Jews, we have so much in common and religion links us and whatever. I think it's important sometimes to start from a place of difference and humility. And I think that's something we can start to do with Mizrahi music and recognize that this may not be what we're used to. Although I do think because music has globalized so much, and especially in Israeli music, Mizrahi music is not sanctioned off or balkanized like the way it was. But I think you still sometimes hear that. Yeah, I think that's a good insight. I think I certainly remember growing up with quite a good bit of kind of casual racism about Arab music and the perception of like Jewish music versus Arab music. I think based on what we've seen so far, Shoshana Damari and Ofra Chaza do succeed in Israel and certainly for diaspora Jews, Ofra Chaza does, breaking down the perception of who's a singer. But I think you're right. The more that it actually sounds like quote unquote Arab music, the more foreign it gets perceived as being less Israeli. And part of what we've seen in this whole history is the blending of these cultures and the production of something that is sometimes sounds extremely Middle Eastern and sometimes sounds extremely European and oftentimes creates something totally new. Now I want to make an unsustainable claim, which is that if we want to follow the thread of what does Mizrahi woman becoming the voice of Israeli society look like, I think that the second coming of Ofrahaz is Sarit Haddad. I want to give one example, which maybe is unfair to her because it's not her song. The song is called Misma Chatani. It is a piyut, is a liturgical poem. It's the name of, and ultimately the soundtrack to the movie that gets released in English with the unfortunate name, The Women's Balcony. I really recommend watching this music video because one of the things that's extraordinary about it is Sarit Haddad singing this song together with the entire cast, who all know it. <laughs> They all know it because of the blurred lines between, as we've talked about earlier, religious and secular, what you would sing in synagogue and what you would sing elsewhere. The notion that there isn't really such a thing as secular as it relates to Mizrahi Jews. And it's just, you can't help but smile and watching this video and certainly listening to the music. <laughs> this and I want them to be friends with me. I also noticed the hunk in the video who plays the rabbi is Aviva Lush, who's like, I think the cover boy. He's incredibly handsome, also a singer and Temani. Yes. And also someone who is mitzchazeket, someone who sort of strengthened his religious identity. A lot of Mizrahi Jews or even Israeli Jews in general don't love the Balei Tshuva, the sort of idea of returning. But I highly recommend his Instagram to see he often posts a quote from whatever, you know, Rambam he's learning that day or that sort of thing. But yeah, he's a huge hunk. But this is also gets at what you were talking about before, Shana. This is not mediated or filtered Mizrahi music. Right. <laughs> this is Mizrahi music. And so in some ways, this is harder, I would imagine, for Ashkenazi American Jewish audiences to hear and appreciate than something like Chai, which is a Mizrahi singer who is actually singing a song that's been made into like a usable pop song for the Eurovision contest. Let's stay with the Mizrahim for a little bit longer, because again, I think this could be our whole show. I want something totally different, subliminal, a rapper, a collaboration with Miri Ben-Ari, a very theological song, a very different type of move. And again, the bridging of genres, peoples, and the production of Israeli theological music. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
ואיך המשיח לא בא כבר להציל מטרות נאות במטווחו של השטן אי אפשר להתחבר ולברוח אין לאן טמפרטורה מתחממת ונדבקת לרגליים עפר לעפר הנשמות לשמיים אוקיי, It's a perfect, guys, this is a perfect storm. It's Adon Olam. Right, right. You hear the song Adon Olam, which is a Hasidic song festival classic. It's like a perfect Israeli secular rendering of a Jewish song. It's a Holocaust elegy. Sung by a Mizrahi singer. I, it's just, it's basically perfect. It's amazing. I've just never, I've also, it's just odd to me to have a Mizrahi singer with that kind of angry hip hop attitude talking about the Shoah, which is not the usual topic of Mizrahi. That's <laughs> quite a thing. I do think, you know, thinking about hip hop, right? You know, DMX, unfortunately, passed away over the weekend. And if you think about the model of someone who was like so, I mean, had a really tough life, had plenty of, themes in his rap that were drugs, sex, women, etc. But also, to his immense credit, spoke very deeply about pain and emotion and whatnot. And I'm not saying Subliminal is the DMX level, but I think there's that mode that he's definitely going for, right? The serious rapper, the rapper who can comment on things. Rap has always had this sort of duality of being about drug, sex, money, but also about really deep and important social issues. I don't know if the fusion... white comes off here but i think it's really interesting to think about and to see i think it does i think in a piece like this he sees himself doing the same thing naomi shemra was doing which is be the voice of the collective story of the jewish people and don't worry about the fact that he's blinged out the same way that anyone else who would be in the same station is doing that doesn't matter the story is this kind of anchoring but no the blinging is actually crucial right he's blinged out because he's proud he's wearing the jewish star he's wearing this thing like it's loud and proud This is true in America as well, but like black power, black identity politics inspires Jews in a lot of ways to be more proud of themselves. And he's taking those same cues. He's just putting a Jewish spin on them. Great. Last play in this category. I want to listen to Awa. This recording is actually from an NPR music tiny desk concert. So Awa is a band made up of three Yemenite sisters who are playing explicitly Yemenite music. It is groundbreaking in two significant ways. Their song, Habib Galbi, which you hear in a second, is the first Arabic song to hit number one on the Israeli charts. And it is the first Israeli song to hit number one in the Yemeni charts. So this is groundbreaking, boundary-shifting music. It is very conscious in some of the songs, very political in some of the songs about what it means to grow up as Temani, as Yemenite in Israel. It is unapologetic about its Yemeniteness. I will tell you, I was at a concert once, maybe two years ago, pre-pandemic in Tel Aviv. And this was just a wild party with Awa. There was a guy walking around just with a bottle of Arak and little plastic cups. That was just like, and that was like part of the concert. It was the expectation. Of course, you're going to have a little Arak. Just a wild party. Here, listen to these three sisters. But there's something remarkable going on here with the kind of unapologetic cultural ownership, pride. This is Israeli in the eyes of the world, as different as it is for when you're sitting around a campfire singing Bashan Ahaba'ah. Yeah, so I actually saw Awa perform in D.C., which was a totally different experience because it was really international. Obviously, plenty of Israelis there, but... There were tons of people from all over the world. I heard people talking about they got into it because someone shared it in their Yemenite Facebook group. You know, there were Turkish people there just reminding us and connecting us to a different part of Israel. And for me also, especially with Awa, is that they are reclaiming songs that were sung by grandmothers. They're feminine songs. They're songs that you don't always hear recorded, right? Something that 
you know, we can talk a lot about, we're talking about produced music here. We're talking about music that's recorded, you know, often music, and especially for women, and especially for religious women, not just Mizrahi women, we don't necessarily hear their musical creations, right? The songs that they create and the songs that they sing. So their music is an act of feminist reclamation. This song, I think originally it was often sung at weddings, um, and they talk about how they learned a lot from their grandmother. And to me, that's just so incredibly powerful. And I know you linked to the Tiny Desk concert, which is amazing, but I also recommend the original music video because it's like them and like pink babayas running around the desert. It's just wild. And I love them and they're amazing and so fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting that you said, Yehuda, that they represent Israel in the eyes of the world because part of what's happening here is a sort of a rejection of Israeliness by, as you say, increasingly proud Mizrahi groups. And, you know, even the term Mizrahi really ropes together groups that are very different. And it was sort of at the cutting edge of reclaiming the Yemenite Arabic singing. But with them is a figure like Ravid Kachelani, who performs under the name of Yemen Blues, who traveled to Yemen in order to relearn Temani Arabic. And Dudu Tasa, whose grandfather was a big sensation in Baghdad and performs now in Baghdadi Arabic with a group called the Kuwaitis. And Netta El-Kayam, who is definitely someone to look out for, who is relearning Moroccan Arabic and singing in Moroccan Arabic. When I said in the beginning that, you know, part of the Jewishness is reclaiming diaspora identities, this is part of that major trend. There was just a great profile of Netta in the New York Times, and there was a great documentary film about her and her musical partner's journey. That's amazing. That's great. And you're right to point out that there's a risk of a certain collapsing of categories. Sarit Haddad is a good example. She's not Temani. She's from the Jews of the Caucasus. Her family's Azerbaijani. And so she's in this quote-unquote genre that spans thousands of miles. This past week, people all around the world commemorated Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. This year, the Shalom Hartman Institute introduced Heat Consuit to the North American Jewish community in an hour-long interactive ceremony of song, poetry, family history, and personal reflections. Conceptualized by author Professor Michal Govrin and Rabbi Dr. Rani Yeager, the Yom HaShoah Heat Consuit is a powerful new ritual that honors those who perished in the Holocaust while transforming memory into a deeply personal commitment to eliminate all forms of dehumanization. You can watch a video recording of the event now at shalomhartman.org slash heatkansuit. I want to bridge a little bit from Mizrahim proper as their own category of this music to also talk about the ways in which there's been a larger reclamation project going on in Israeli society about Jewish music by oftentimes, quote unquote, secular musicians. One of the bridge individuals is Kobe O's. We won't listen to this piece, but we'll put it in the playlist. One of the great angry songs of the Israeli Mizrahi heritage is Rabbi Joe Kapara. Kobe O's is deep criticism of like the veneration of rabbis and the corruption of the rabbis. So that's like one piece of Kobe Oz's legacy as the lead singer of Tipex. But Oz is also part of a story in Israeli society of the musician who becomes successful as a secular musician and then goes back to their heritage looking for the pious music, the piyut music. We're going to talk about two great examples of this, Ehud Banai and Shait Sabari in a moment, but I want to use Kobe Oz first because he, in addition to the activity of like going to look for liturgical poetry and putting it in their music, Oz is very self-conscious about being part of this process. In fact, he's one of a number of musicians who gets there through Ruth Calderon's efforts in Tel Aviv. The Alma and Elul Batei Midrash, houses of study, become places that attract people of culture to come study Judaism, not in order to make them quote-unquote religious, but essentially to open up to them a canon of the stuff that is the inheritance of the Jewish past. And this song in particular from Kobios' solo album is called Elohai, and it is a weaving together of his grandfather's music as a traditional python, as a liturgical singer, with a reflection in his own singing about what it means to be the inheritor of that legacy. <laughs> so you can hear it in this song, this is actually directed to God. It's its own form of liturgical poem, 
but it's also obviously directed his grandfather and you can hear Oz's own navigating of what it means to be a singer in a tradition and departing from this tradition as well. Let's go into this Piyut business. And I want to ask each of you to introduce the kind of mega stars of the Piyut industry, rock musicians in Israel who produce Piyut albums, religious albums, whether because they're themselves becoming religious or whether because it's the water that they swim in. Shayna, talk about Ehud Banai for us. Right. So first, the Banai family is just this epic musical family. Each one of them, we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about their own journeys, just like a factory for Israeli culture. And Ehud Banai, I think it's about this point, maybe 15, 20 years ago, becomes religious. And unlike maybe other Israeli cultural people who have become observant and sort of disappeared from the cultural scene, and we have seen that, he sort of blends his new identity and creates new music. And he doesn't just do Pew Team, although we're going to talk about right now, these sort of reinterpretations of Jewish traditional liturgical music. You see more sort of religious themes of searching and of longing in his music as well. And he's become really, I would say, almost like the elder statesman with a really gentle religiosity. It's not preachy. It's not trying to convince anyone. It's just about searching. And I think with a rise and, you know, sometimes scholars call it new age or sort of spiritual seeking in Israel, it blends really well together in these really interesting and fascinating ways. And I just also want to say one thing about Kobe O's. That song is from an album called Mizmorim Nevochim, Psalms for the Perplexed, which is such a beautiful, beautiful play on the religious tradition. And instead of a guide to the perplexed, he's just offering psalms to the perplexed. I just learned something interesting about this whole Piyut revival, which is that it was somewhat conscious and deliberate that a woman named Cheli Tabibi Barakat, who organized these informal meetings, some of it with the support of the Avichai Foundation and with other charitable foundations, to introduce mainstream musicians to the riches of the Mizrahi Piyut tradition with no goal in mind other than just to sort of expose them to master traditional musicians. And coming out of that, we have things like Ehud Banai's album, which we're going to listen to here, Shir Chadash, but also like the extraordinary Barry Sakharov album, in which Barry Sakharov, who's a 90s kind of grunge figure who's amazing, devoted an entire album to the poetry of Shlomo Ibn Gvirol. And so it's one of these interesting moments of sort of like cultural engineering that really panned out. It wasn't exactly grassroots, but it became grassroots. I didn't know that story until recently, and it kind of blew my mind. Just to add to that, my colleague, Galit Dardashti, who in and of herself is an incredible musician. Her grandfather was a chazan in Iran, and she does stuff with the Persian tradition. She is also an incredible academic. She has done a lot of research on the Piyut Festival. So it's actually something that, to a large extent, was engineered, for a lack of a better term, by Avichai and Jewish philanthropy. Yeah. And just to note for our listeners, the production of this music doesn't move these musicians off the stage. It just changes what's actually on the stage for Banai and for Tzabari. This is not a, I'm introducing to this musical tradition so you can go now lead services. This is actually a total transformation of what actually appears on stage as being cutting edge new Israeli music. Um, so go ahead, Joe, tell us about Tzabari and then I want to hear these two clips. Tzabari is not quite the same as Ewud Banai. Ewud Banai, he sells out stadiums and always has. Shai Tzabari is a sort of musician's musician. He knows the inside of the industry very well. And he has a very refined sensibility, but he's not a household name. And he really bridges worlds. He can pull off a traditional piyut. He was raised in Batyam, going to the Temani synagogue there, and he learned to sing in shul. But from a very early age, he became a sort of a showman. And he does all sorts of wild mashups of genres. His shows are not exactly shows. They're also kind of religious experiences. Someone once described it as like the Balt Fila in a disco, right? It's this kind of real event. And he's so kind of outre and creative that I doubt he'll ever be a huge figure, but he's one of these important musicians that all the other musicians really know, and his influence is quite large in that way. Let's listen to Banai. <laughs>
ביי ביי. Different sounds, similar instincts. Joe, tell us a little bit about Ana, Ana, Ana. Yeah, so Ana, Ana, Ana is a cover of a Leonard Cohen song called Lover, Lover, Lover. And in place of Lover, 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 Shlomi Shaban, who translated, puts the word Ana, 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 which is kind of a classical Hebrew word of pleading here to God. And it's one of these amazing moments where Leonard Cohen himself often blurred the distinction between sort of erotic love and divine love is then put into the mouth of Shai Tzavari, who makes it fully about divine love while kind of keeping the urgency and, as you heard, that kind of awesome track underneath it that gives it this real modern feel. And that's something that we see quite a lot in adaptations of traditional music. The music itself often comes from a love poem, like Song of Songs, right? Which at heart is about erotic love, and then it becomes divine love, and then it goes back to being erotic love, and then back to divine. And that's part of what makes its appeal so broad, I think. Now, there are some weird consequences that come from this blurring of religion and music, one of which... We'll put it in the playlist, but Mutti Steinmetz is one of the characters in this story who has had a whole series of legal cases, refuses to perform in front of mixed audiences, and there's a whole legal question about being able to control your audiences. Omer Adam, I want to give one example of his music here, refusing to perform in the Eurovision because he always have to perform on Shabbat, or in this incredibly weird case is performing a song together with Moshe Peretz on stage. You have to watch the YouTube video because they start off by taking out Talitot and wrapping themselves in Talitot. It's hysterical because they've never been used before. You can see the tags are on the Talitot. And then they sit on stage performing the song based on Mode Ani, the prayer of Mode Ani. In their Talits, it's like there's something, they're in the same family of things of Ehud Banai performing liturgical poetry on stage versus these guys sitting here in their Talits. Just listen for one minute. <laughs> Modeani al Modeani Something weird about this, right? It's not straightforward. Look, like, the Teletote are new, but these are singers who are intimately at home with religion and practices. They are wearing their Teletote, quote-unquote, correctly, right? They're not like the sort of locker room talus wearing you sometimes see. And they don't see any contradiction between their songs about love or even their tattoos, in the case of Omar Adam, who has tons of tattoos, and what they're doing, right? And what they're singing. And it's all part of one thing. You know, we could speak a lot about the growing visibility of religiosity in Israel. If we want to critique it, we could talk about some of the bro culture in the bro swagger that comes out of this, someone who I don't think we're talking about today, but definitely embodies this in all sorts of problematic ways. And of course, Ayal Golan um, and everything that goes along with that. And it also picks up into searching and thinking. And especially as some of these guys age, they get sort of more serious and they start thinking about things and then you see their music going in that turn as well. But I love this stuff. I think about it all the time. It's funny, though. So I grew up in the Deep South, and I remember when Amy Grant, who is a Christian conservative singer, decided to go popular. And it was like a whole thing. Like, has she sold out? Has she not sold out? She sort of goes back to being Christian. You know, that's another topic. But, you know, thinking about it in this case, you know, these boundaries just don't exist anymore in Israeli society in the same way, at least for these kind of singers. There are definitely singers who remain within the sort of religious context, but there are these secular singers who can really dabble in interesting ways in a way that I just don't think we see in American culture, right? I mean, look at Kanye's maybe not the best example, but Kanye's dabbles with religiosity are often really mocked in a way that I found really unnerving and not respectful.
I would just read Omar Adam a little bit differently. I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is that a lot of this is affected with him, right? Which is, for example, you know, he's half American and he's half Caucasian Jew, mountain Jew, but he puts on a kind of a Mizrahi silsul, Mizrahi kind of ornaments very well. He's an amazingly gifted singer, but it's not what he was raised with. And I think it's similar with his religiosity. I think the audience sort of demands it at this point, right? Because the audience moves in this direction. You see it as well, like in Likud, which is that formerly secular people like Gidon Sar take on more and more religious observance because the voters want it. So it's a testament, I think, to the power of the image of the religious singer and the way in which if you're not quite religious enough, it can be a career handicap. Yeah, it plays in Peoria. The flip side is the rockification of quote-unquote Jewish music, and Shweki is a great example. It used to be that only like the legends played at Caesarea, right? That's where, you know, you have the Huda Pollocker concert and the David Broza concert. You reach the pinnacle where you can actually play a 1,000-seat venue from the Roman period. But Shweki a Hasidic musician who's both Israeli and American. He lives in Bergen County, but he's Israeli and also half Mizrahi, performs at the Kesaria, and that's the inverse of this story. I have to mention Shweki, and we'll put him in the Spotify playlist because it turns out there's a phenomenon on the internet of Shweki bros on Twitter. They were super mad we didn't mention him in the From Music episode, so I'm mentioning him here. He's very, very important. He's a wonderful singer. He sings the song of Yonatan Rezel, who's a yeshiva student who writes beautiful music. I want to get to our last few pieces, which are some of the individual we're going to work on two today who are also stretching genres and identities. And then we'll conclude with a couple of things, what to watch for. The first, just totally wacky, Victoria Hanna. Victoria Hanna, to quote my colleague Shai Sekunda, she's a Kabbalist. She's taking these really mystical ideas, right? In this, it's that each letter of the alphabet has its own energy and sound and sort of something that you can play with. And she embodies it. And she embodies it in this radical way, which is a group of girls learning. She comes from a sort of ultra-Orthodox background, and rather the sort of traditional image of boys learning and learning the letters and that being their introduction, she takes it to girls learning and offers a twist on it. Also by doing radical beatboxing and crazy things with her voice and trippy things. She's just incredible. I was watching the Chubishvat concert that the National Library put on, and she had a tree headpiece on her head while she was singing about like trees and mysticism and like quotes from Sefer Yetzira. You just can't even put her in a category. She's really just her own thing. But again, just for me, she really brings to life mystical texts in a way that I don't think I've ever seen in culture in Israel. I have nothing to add. It's perfect. She's a genius and one of the strangest people I've ever met and a real visionary artist. Again, like Shai, she's never going to be a huge hit in Israel, but she's part of what emerges from this incredible kind of complex culture that's growing there. And as Shana mentioned at the end, she has a whole system that she's developed about the Hebrew language that's derived from Sefer Yetzirah, this ancient Jewish mystical text. And she works with language. She does body healing with Hebrew language. She's a mystic of sorts. And one of the expressions of that is her music, but it's not the whole of what she's about. I also think she stands out because she's really a voice artist. She really plays with her voice in a way that I think we don't always see among popular music. She sort of throws it, she trips it, she plays with it. Her voice is an instrument in a way that I think is just so interesting and so out there. Yeah, I'm thrilled by her and also by Yishai Rebo, who we'll listen to in a second. Also, just because I really do care about the thickness of Jewish people and our culture. And this is what happens when you plant in a soil of Hebrew and text. This kind of stuff we just can't, you can't just like simply educate towards. And there's access to this kind of depth in the bridge between text and music and culture and society that is just extraordinary. Here's the other, you just can't have an episode like this without Yishai Rebo. It's not the same as Victoria Hanna, much more commercially successful, but he's using text and liturgy 
in popular music in a way that's just unbelievable. This is his piece called Seder Havodah, which really is almost directly ripped out of the Yom Kippur liturgy about the temple with slight modifications, but I find musically just mind-blowing. Anyway, listen to the whole thing. I listen to it on repeat before Yom Kippur comes. I'm never going to be able to sing that even if I lead services in shul. But like, if you listen to it for a while, it'll help you get ready for it. The song is so stunning. And as you said, academics have this fancy word. They call it intertextuality. He's not just... It's not just a quote or two from the Yom Kippur liturgy. He's imagining himself in the Kohen Gadol's mindset and expanding on it. And the music matches with it. And it is just so, so beautiful. And you have the crescendo, which is the sort of ultimate journey of Yom Kippur, with the Kohen Gadol going into the Holy of Holies and the real drama of will he come out alive or not. And, of course, this tune... I have already heard used in American Yom Kippur services. So again, just blurring these lines once and once again. And yeah, this is just such a beautiful thing. And another song he did when the pandemic started, it's called Keter Melucha, let's say, right, the crown of kingship. And he uses the parshiot to mark the patterns, which is a very old school way. Like you'll see that in really old rabbinic writings of, you know, in Yom Gimel of Parsha Shmini, this happened. It makes it very annoying for a historian, by the way. Thank God for Luach.com, which can tell you when Parsha Shmini was in like 1855, which is something I've had to do. And talks about how we missed those Torah portions, but also uses them to mark the passing of time during the pandemic. So again, just bringing together all sorts of really interesting things of language and culture. We covered a couple of big themes over the course of this time, some of the early roots the forces at work that create this fertile and fecund music culture. We talked about Mizrahim. We talked about the return to Jewish text and the dancing back and forth between quote-unquote secular or popular music and Jewish music. So I gave our panelists one last opportunity to do a what did we miss and what do you watch for? Each of them has something that they told me they couldn't miss. Don't leave it out. Shayna, talk to us about Narkis. First of all, we have to talk about her name. Her name means Narcissus. As you might guess, this is not like a very common name for religious Israelis, or really any Israelis to say. She didn't grow up observant, was raised sort of by hippie Israelis, becomes more observant, stops singing actually for a while because of religious strictures. In a lot of circles of orthodoxy, there's an idea of kolisha, of women's voice not being heard in public. She gets married. She is actually part of the population that is evacuated or expelled, whatever language you want to use from Gush Katif, from Gaza, eventually gets divorced and starts to go back to her music and starts this recording career where she has become incredibly popular. She is lighting one of the torches this year in the Independence Day ceremony. And like many of the other artists we've mentioned, she has songs about longing and religion that could be about God, could be about a person. She also covers traditional Pew team. She has songs that are from Yemenite poets that are unknown. So there's active recovery. And for me, we've talked about gender here and there, but so much of this revival of Jewish texts and whatever is male. It's coded male. That's who has access. And Narkis, who covers her hair, interestingly enough, she talks about wanting to be a symbol of being religious and dresses modestly, but has a voice like, unbelievable, nothing you've ever heard, can fill a room, I think just shows a different model of what it means. And in the religious community in Israel, you've seen more and more women who are willing to challenge traditional notions of what it means to be not just a religious woman, but also this idea of kolisha. When does it apply? When does it not apply? Does it mean anything for them? And she's just such a perfect example of that. And she blends together so many different genres, it's almost impossible to pick out which one. So I just 
really, really, really recommend all of her music. I can talk about Narkees for a long time, so I'll stop there. Without further ado, here's Narkees singing Imnin Alu, which is the piyut we talked about earlier with respect to Opechaza. Yeah, listen to that and watch the video. Joe, tell us about Gon Ben-Ari. Yeah, I'm trying to get as contemporary as I can. Gon Ben-Ari is this wild figure that's just new on the scene. Like a lot of Israelis, he's gone through a lot of different sort of Gilgulim in his life. He is an heir to the Dayan Geffen dynasty. His great uncle was Moshe Dayan and his uncle is Yonatan Geffen which, as is known in sort of Israeli society, is also a family with a lot of suicide, a lot of genius and a lot of suicide. Both his great aunt and his aunt killed themselves. And he was first known in the sort of Tel Aviv hipster world as a very mean-spirited music reviewer for Yediot Achronot. And he wrote screenplays and novels, and he was a famous boyfriend of the American writer Nicole Krauss for many years. And then at some point, he went to the Amazon and did a lot of ayahuasca, and emerged from that experience as a musician and as some sort of a Kabbalist. <laughs> and it's the most sort of unlikely story, except that he's been studying Kabbalah for about 10 years and now teaches sessions for which he charges a hefty price, also using Sefera Yetzirah, that same book that influenced Victoria Khanna. And then he emerged with his album, which he said that his greatest music teacher was his shaman. And this album is the strangest sort of thing. It's kind of half Hare Krishna style chants. It's kind of like between spoken word and hip hop. And there is sheer genius in it. And also terrible musicianship. It's everything. But the show that I went to on Pesach was in the middle of the Shapira neighborhood, which is a really rundown neighborhood in the shadow of the central bus station. Everybody in the place was a Chiloni young, young person drinking beer on Pesach, right? And yet the atmosphere was one of sort of reverence and tremendous religiosity, muttering again and again the word Adonai, 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 speaking about the Ein Sof. He has a very angry piece that the prime minister has to understand that there's a God above him. And he's someone to watch. I don't know if he's kind of a fraud or a genius or a mixture of the two, but he has tremendous charisma. And the thing that really struck me is that even though his album came out, what, two months ago, every single one of these very difficult words were known by heart by the entire community. And it was sort of like a new liturgy, which is equal parts a psychedelic trip and sort of religious revelation. I'm scared of that dude. Okay, this is my last piece. I was conflicted on this. I wanted to put in Shiri Maimon singing Bashana Haba'a, the Naomi Shemer song, which felt perfect. Anyway, we'll put it in the playlist. Here's what I want to finish with. Israel's version of The Voice. You know how, like, on The Voice, when a guy gets kicked off, they let them sing their last song? So this is not, like, one of those things where the chairs spin around. you got to watch the video. Eyal Cohen. Just the optics of this are just extraordinary. He's singing just a legendary Israeli song by Yehuda Pollocker, the title song of the album Efer Ve'avak, Ashes and Dust, which is Pollocker's kind of deep Holocaust album, remembering the Salonican Jewish community. And here you have Mizrahi, religious looking Jew with his religious family looking in the background, singing the Pollocker song with Aviv Geffen, secular icon, crying in the front row as he watches. It feels just to be like it tells a whole package of a story. <laughs> Thank 
גם צמא, גם רע. החזור אדום, וניסה חזר לכפר, We could go for a lot longer. We went long. This was a joy. There's so much of a powerful story here to tell about Israel, what it has been, what it will be around culture, around ethnicity, around religion. And I'm so grateful to our guests, Shana Weiss and Joe Schwartz, for being with us today for this special episode. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by David Svi Kalman and Alex Dillon and edited by Alex Dillon with research support by Sam Hainback, assistance from Miri Miller, and music provided by so-called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes, or you could just tweet at us what we got wrong about this show to help more people discover it. You can write to us at identitycrisis.shalomhartman.org. And of course, you can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Happy Yom Atzmaut, and thanks for listening. 